0: The believing sinners are the living stones, which Jesus is building his church. Not on them, but with them. Those of us who are believers in Christ, we are living stones. We are the church. We are the building. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. In this episode, I'm going to talk about building the church. Obviously, I don't mean a church building. I mean the assembly of people who gather to worship God. So, the way in which the church is built is God calls men to govern his church, and they do so through ministry of word and sacrament. Yet, the Bible teaches that God alone does all the work in salvation, and this is laid out pretty clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And there we see that the work of salvation is a Trinitarian work. We see all three persons of the Trinity involved in salvation. There in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is addressing Christians that are dispersed around Asia Minor, and he calls them elect exiles, and they're elect exiles according to God's foreknowledge, meaning God knew them before they were saved. He says they're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit, and they're elect exiles for obedience to Christ. They're elect exiles for the sprinkling with his blood. And we see this even more elsewhere. In John chapter 6, verse 37, we see that God gave Jesus a number of people to save. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And it's certain that they're going to come to him. So all that the Father gave to Jesus to save will be saved. And we see in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, that the Holy Spirit regenerates. And we know from the Gospels and elsewhere that Jesus obeyed the law on our behalf. He died the death that we deserve, and he rose from the dead on our behalf. And because we're united to Christ by faith, all that belongs to him belongs to us. His obedience is our obedience. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. But not only does God do all of the work of salvation, Jesus is the one who builds his church, and he does this by calling people to himself. And how does he do that? Well, he calls men to go preach his word, to administer the sacraments, to exercise church discipline and other works of ministry. He nourishes his people by these means. Now, with this in mind, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And the first thing to see in verses 13 to 15 is a shift. Jesus asks, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They say John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus directs the question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, there's three parts to this shift. First, there's a shift from Son of Man To Jesus, and here Jesus is connecting Himself to the Son of Man, and what does He mean by Son of Man? Well, Ezekiel gives us a glimpse of the Son of Man. Ezekiel was a prophet to Judah during the exile, and he saw several visions, and that's what he has written down in the Book of Ezekiel. And Son of Man is used over ninety times, and several times God calls Ezekiel Son of Man. And there's one instance in Ezekiel chapter thirty-seven where he prophesies, and there's resurrection. That there is the valley of dry bones, and they were very dry bones, and the point that he's getting at is they were really dead. And when he preaches, the bones come together, and tissue grows on the bones, and life is breathed into the body lying on the ground, and it comes to life. Well, this is a picture of Christ. We see that when he called Lazarus from the grave in John chapter 11. But Daniel gives us a glimpse as well. He, too, served during the exile, same time as Ezekiel. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he says that the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and an eternal kingdom. Clearly, the Son of Man pointed to Jesus. These two prophets ministered hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. But we get a glimpse in the New Testament as well, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen said that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We see that in verse 56. Jesus is the Son of Man. So the first part of this shift is from Son of Man to Jesus. The second part is what do people say and what do the disciples say? Now, there was some confusion concerning the Son of Man. People didn't really know. Was he John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah? a prophet, I find it interesting that none of them said Ezekiel, since Ezekiel used Son of Man over 90 times in his book. So, to the people, the Son of Man was a mystery man. They didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of Man. Now, this tells us that Jesus didn't look any different than anybody else. He is human, just like you and me. He didn't hover. There wasn't an aura around him. He looked like any other Jew. In fact, this was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. Speaking of Christ, the suffering servant, it said that he had no form or majesty that we would look at him. There was no beauty that we would desire him. He was physically unrecognizable as the Messiah, as the Son of Man. You see, Jesus is human. He is God, but he is human. He looked like everyone else. Yet, Peter recognized him he confessed that he is the Christ. Now, Christ is really the same thing as the Old Testament Messiah. They're just two different languages, Old Testament being Hebrew, New Testament being Greek, yet really it's the same thing. They were the anointed. So, the Messiah was pointing to the anointed, prophesying about the the anointed, and Christ is the anointed. So, Christ is the anointed Savior of the world. He is the Savior that God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, how did Peter recognize Jesus as the Christ while others didn't? Is it because he was super smart? He just had a knack for seeing these things? No, it was the work of God. In fact, Jesus calls Peter blessed. And why does he say that? Because God has taken an interest in him. Jesus tells him in verse 17 that flesh and blood didn't reveal this to him. The Father revealed this to him. So Peter didn't figure this out on his own. He wasn't just so spiritually in tune that he recognized Jesus. God opened his eyes. He revealed Jesus to Peter. And that's the same with us. We're not super smart or so spiritually in tune that we recognize Jesus as the Christ. God revealed it to us. He made Christ known to us. Now, there's a third shift, but this is really related to the second one, and that's this unknown figure to, you are the Christ. The people were unsure, and Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. I'm not going to go into detail here because it's really related to the second point. But in summary, there's a three-part shift. Son of man to Jesus, the people to disciples. They don't really know who he is. Jesus is the Christ. Now, look at what Jesus says next. He tells Simon, who is Peter, he tells Simon, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says that in verse 18. Now, there's several things to see here. First, he calls Simon Peter. Peter here in the Greek is the word for rock, right? It's the word that we get, petroleum. And then Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Well, what does Jesus mean by this rock? Is Peter the rock? Well, there are some who would say so, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Peter's not the rock on which Jesus would build his church. And why do I say that? Well, Paul calls Jesus the cornerstone in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Now, I'm not an architect or a, a builder, but as I understand it, the cornerstone is really the important stone. Everything is built on that cornerstone. So that makes sense that Jesus is the cornerstone because the church is built on him. And then also referring to when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, there in Exodus chapter 17, Paul in the New Testament says that Christ was that rock. So Moses did that hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. And Paul, after the death and resurrection of Christ, says that Jesus is that rock. And then also, if Peter was the rock, Jesus would have said something like, you're Peter, and on you will I build my church. But he doesn't say that. Another piece to this is we don't have the nonverbals. Perhaps Jesus said, you're Peter, and pointing to himself on this rock, I will build my church. Not saying that is what happened, but what I'm saying is we don't have the nonverbals. We just have the written language. And then finally, Peter's no different than you and me. He's just as sinful as we are. So it'd make no sense that the church is built on Peter. So what is this rock that Jesus is talking about? Well, I think there's three possibilities. The first one is the confession. You are the Christ. Maybe Jesus was saying on that confession, I will build my church. Okay. The second possibility is that Jesus is the rock. Well, he is the cornerstone. So we know that he's that. So it makes sense that he would be the rock on which he builds his church. Or perhaps the believing sinner, that's the third possibility. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, that we are living stones being built up in a spiritual house. So in either case, we are the building material of the church, and Christ is the cornerstone. The believing sinners are the living stones which Jesus is building his church. Not on them, but with them those of us who are believers in Christ, we are living stones. We are the church. We are the building. Next, who is the builder of Christ's church? I think this is an important question because we often feel like the weight is on us to build Christ's church. We don't feel like he's moving fast enough, or we need to do certain things to build his church, maybe have more upbeat music or have different lights in the sanctuary, whatever it might be. We often feel like it's our responsibility to build the church. But what does Jesus say? I will build my church. Jesus doesn't need anybody. He works through men to build his church, but he doesn't need you and me to build his church. God does all the work. Now, I do want to footstomp one more thing here. This is Christ's church, not ours. He says, I will build my church. And I think this is a warning to us, in particular, those of us in ministry. The church isn't ours to mess with. So we have to be very careful how we conduct ministry, because it's Christ's church, not ours. But we also have a guarantee here. Jesus will build his church. Then look at what he says in verse 18. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I used to think this was a defensive term, meaning that hell is going to be sending a barrage and they just can't make any headway against the church. But that's not what this is. It's not the gates of heaven. It's the gates of hell. You see, hell is on defense. Jesus is on offense. And hell cannot defend itself. Think about that. Hell can't win. The church may look frail, weak, defeated, But it's victorious because Jesus is the builder. Jesus then gives us a glimpse of how he'll build his church. He says to Peter that he's going to give him the keys to the kingdom. And whatever he binds on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever he looses on earth is loosed in heaven. And here he's talking specifically to Peter. But in two chapters, he's going to be talking to the disciples. And he says something similar. Whatever they bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does he mean by this? Well, this is connected to the Great Commission found in Matthew 28. All authority belongs to Jesus, and he commissioned his disciples. He tasked them to go make disciples, and they do so by teaching and baptizing, or word and sacrament. Yet, it's the sovereignty of God that makes this happen. Jesus works through his people, but he's building his church. He didn't relinquish his authority to church leaders. We are not the shepherds. We are under shepherds. He is the shepherd. We do his bidding because it's his church, and he builds his church through his people, and hell can't stop it. Now, I think at this point, it's important to talk about true churches and false churches. There is such a thing as a false church. And that's a church that would look like, act like, function like a church, but it's not really a church. Article 29 of the Belgic Confession says, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. So there are marks of a true church. And if these marks are not represented in the church, then you have to question if it's a false church. So, the keys of the kingdom are word, sacrament, and discipline. These are the means of opening and closing the kingdom. But again, Christ didn't relinquish his authority. It's through these means that Christ builds his church. Now, this doesn't mean that true churches will function perfectly. They won't. Every church is filled with sinners Even ministers and elders and deacons are sinners. We're imperfect. We make mistakes. We don't see things clearly. Sometimes our judgment is off. Sometimes, because of our own calloused hearts, we're not caring. We're not pastoral. We make mistakes. Yet Christ rules every true church through these imperfect men. And the key in all of this, faithful to the task, word, sacrament, discipline. Jesus continues to gather his sheep, and hell can do nothing about it. He gathers his people by calling them. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice. He knows them, and they follow him. And how do they hear him? Through imperfect people proclaiming God's word. Remember, in John chapter 6, verse 37, the Father gave Jesus a people to save, and Jesus came to rescue them. He lived a perfect life for them. He died on the cross on their behalf. He rose from the dead on their behalf. The Holy Spirit changes the spiritually dead, making them spiritually alive. Jesus sends preachers They hear the gospel and they believe. So in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, we see that Jesus speaks through the preachers. He sends them out to the world. The people hear his voice, as he says in John 10. Think about that. In John chapter 10, did Jesus just mean when he was here physically? No, he means in all time. We saw the same thing in the Old Testament with the prophets. How did the people hear the voice of God? Through the prophets. It's the same thing today. We hear through preachers. So Jesus sends these preachers. They proclaim the word of God. Those whom the Spirit has made alive hear his voice, and they hold firm to the Christ they hear and hell can't stop this. The church is everywhere. United States, Iran, China, Korea, Brazil, Argentina. It's everywhere, and Satan can't stop it. Now, this should comfort you. First, Jesus is building his church, even today. Now, we might have different denominations, and there's disagreement, and a lot of times we look at that and we think, look how divided the church is. But it's not really divided. We're all united to Christ. It's just that we're sinful and we see things differently. We don't see things clearly. So though I'm a Presbyterian, there are a lot of things that I have in common with my Baptist brothers and sisters, but there's other things that we don't agree on. So we're going to be in different denominations. And I have to believe that the church here in the United States is very much different than the church in Iran or China or perhaps even Brazil yet what's the common denominator? We're united to Christ by faith. So, even though church may look different around the world, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and hell has no defense. It cannot disunite us from Christ. Certainly, hell is going to wreak havoc, but in the end, it has no defense. The gates of hell will not prevail, cannot withstand the barrage of Christ. Second, Ministry cannot fail. Are we going to make mistakes? Well, absolutely. We are sinful people. Mistakes are made all the time, and ministry is messy. But if Jesus builds his church, if God is the one who saves, who does all the work of salvation, how can we fail? God will accomplish his purpose to save his people. This isn't an excuse to be lazy, but we're not the builders. We just do the work of ministry. So let's be active. Let's exercise the gifts that God has given us. And we do that to benefit God's people. So we're not being lazy. We're doing the work that God called us to do. And Jesus is the one who builds his church. And then finally, this should comfort you because God has taken an interest in you. And what's the proof? You believe. You recognize that you are sinful You recognize that standing on your own merit, you're doomed. You recognize that Christ is the only perfect substitute for your salvation, and you rest on him alone because you believe that's proof that God has taken an interest in you. Because this wouldn't have happened apart from the work of God. The Father foreknew you. He gave you to Jesus to save. The Holy Spirit made you alive. And enabled you to trust Jesus. And Jesus called you through a preacher. And you heard the good shepherd. And you believed. Jesus came to bring you in the fold. Because God gave you to him to save. God has taken an interest in you. He did everything to make sure that you were rescued. And he sent Jesus to save you. And hell could do nothing to stop this. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.